0: All the content you had in this podcast episode is non-commercial, fair use, creative commons license. This is the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. You are now listening to like a mega episode of Joseph Campbell being interviewed by Bill Moyers. And uh, it's amazing interview, so we're going to get into episode episode 185, part 4, which is titled... Sacrifice and bliss. Check it.
1: The president in Washington sends word that he wishes to buy our land. But how can you buy or sell the sky, the land? The idea is strange to us. Every part of this earth is sacred to my people. Every shining pine needle, every sandy shore, every mist in the dark woods, every meadow, all are holy in the memory and experience of my people. We're part of the earth and it is part of us. The perfumed flowers are our sisters. The bear, the deer, the great eagle, these are our brothers. Each ghostly reflection in the clear water of the lakes tells of events and memories in the life of my people. The water's murmur is the voice of my father's father. The rivers are our brothers. They carry our canoes and feed our children. If we sell you our land, remember that the air is precious to us, that the air shares its spirit with all the life it supports. The wind that gave our grandfather his first breath also receives his last sigh. This we know The earth does not belong to man, man belongs to the earth. All things are connected like the blood that unites us all. Man did not weave the web of life, he is merely a strand in it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. Your destiny is a mystery to us. What will happen when the buffalo are all slaughtered? What will happen when the secret corners of the forest are heavy with the scent of many men? and the view of the ripe hills is blotted by talking wires, the end of living and the beginning of survival. When the last red man has vanished with his wilderness and his memory is only the shadow of a cloud moving across the prairie, will these shores and forests still be here? Will there be any spirit of my people left? We love this earth as a newborn loves its mother's heartbeat. So, if we sell you our land, love it as we've loved it. Care for it as we've cared for it. Hold in your mind the memory of the land as it is when you receive it. Preserve the land for all children and love it as God loves us all. One thing we know, there's only one God. No man, be he red man or white man, can be a part. We are brothers after all.
2: Joseph Campbell, reading the famous speech said to have been delivered in 1854 by the Native American visionary, Chief Seattle. Campbell immersed himself in the mythology of American Indians, their language, stories, and rituals. He felt a kinship with their understanding of the covenant between human beings and nature, an accord based on reverence and respect required by the reality that we humans live off our environment and not just in it. He often told the story of the young Sioux Indian, Black Elk, who provided us with one of the great insights into the power of myth and symbols to change how we see the world. In a state of ecstasy, Black Elk saw himself on the central mountain of the world, and it turned out to be Harney Peak in South Dakota. And then he said, but the central mountain is everywhere. In other words, every one of us is on a sacred site if only we recognize it. You will hear Joseph Campbell expound on that story later in this broadcast. And you will, I believe, understand why he wanted every new generation to rediscover the power of myth to awaken in all of us a sense of wonder at the world around us. When we met for these conversations, he was working on a monumental multi-volume historical atlas of world mythology. In this and all his work, He took his inspiration from the English poet and mystic William Blake, who said, Arise and drink your bliss, for everything that lives is holy. What does it mean to have a sacred place?
1: This is a term I like to use now as an absolute necessity for anybody today. You must have a room or a certain hour a day or so where you do not know what was in the newspapers that morning. You don't know who your friends are. You don't know what you owe to anybody. You don't know what anybody owes to you. But a place where you can simply experience and bring forth what you are and uh, what you might be. This is the place of creative incubation. And uh, first you may find that nothing's happening there. But if you have a sacred place and use it and take advantage of it, uh, something will happen.
2: This place does for you what the plains did for the hunter... For them, the-,
1: the whole thing was a sacred place, do you see? Mm-hmm. But most of our action is economically or socially determined and does not come out of our life. I don't know whether you've had the experience I've had, but. Uh, as you get older, the, the claims of the environment upon you are so great that you hardly know where the hell you are. Uh, what is it you intended? You're always doing something for, that is required of you. Uh, this minute, that minute, another minute. Where is your, your, your bliss station, you know? Mm. Try to find it. Get a phonograph and put on the records, the music that you really love even if it's corny music that nobody else respects. I mean, the one that you like or the book you want to read, get it done and um, have a place in which to do it. Uh, There, you get the thou feeling of life. These people had it for the whole world that they were living in.
2: We talked about the effect of the spreading plane on mythology, this plane clearly bounded by a circular horizon with that great blue dome of an exalting heaven above, hawks and eagles hovering, the blazing sun passing, the night moon rising, and I can see the effect on people's stories of that. But what about the people who lived in the dense foliage of the jungle? Total
1: transformation of environment and of psychology and everything else.
2: No horizon? No horizon. No dome of the sky? No dome of the sky.
1: A lot of birds up there mm-hmm. and the heavy vegetation underneath with scorpions and poisonous serpents. And in between distances of trees trees and trees. No sense of perspective. Colin Turnbull tells us a marvelous story of bringing a pygmy out of the forest. He brings uh, this uh, pygmy, who'd never been out of the jungle, onto a mountain top, and suddenly uh, they come over the hill, and there's an extensive plain out there, and the poor little uh, fellow was utterly terrified had no way of judging perspective and distance. He thought that the animals grazing on the plain out there were so small that they were ants, that they were just across the way, and so forth, and just totally baffled. He rushes back into the forest. You have a different mythology there. You have a different relationship to the hunt and everything else. The forest is home. You are at home in the forest where you and I would be perhaps ill at ease. Uh, thinking what's behind that tree and all this kind of thing. The, the sense of, of the beautiful, simple delight in their, their forest and their deity is the master of the forest, the forest master.
2: And what impresses me is that these people, the hunters and, and, and the searchers for the roots and for the berries, mm. they're participating in their landscape. They are part of that world. Absolutely. And it becomes sacred to them. Place every, becomes sacred. Every feature of it does. We moderns are stripping the world of its natural revelations of I nature. I I think of that, you remember that wonderful pygmy legend of the little boy who finds the song of the most beautiful, the bird of the most beautiful song in the forest?
1: And uh, he brings it home, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And uh, he asks his father to bring food for the bird, and the father doesn't want to feed only a bird. He, uh, and one time the father kills the bird, and when he killed the bird, he killed his own life, and he died. Is that,
2: That's it. Uh, it? Uh, and, the le- and the legend says the man killed the bird, and with the bird he killed the song, and with the song himself. I mean, Isn't that a story about what happens when human beings destroy their environment? destroy their world, destroy nature and the revelation destroy of nature. Destroy their own nature. Human nature too. They kill the song. They kill the song. And isn't mythology the story of the song?
1: Mythology is the song. It's the, the flight of the imagination inspired by the energies of the,
2: of the body and in its life. What happened as human beings turn from the hunting of animals to the planting of seeds. What happened to the mythic imagination?
1: Well, uh, I try to think of it this way. Uh, an animal, as I think I've said before, is sort of an, an, a, a, a total entity. And when you kill that animal, that animal is dead. But when you cut down a plant, uh, new sprouts come out. Uh, pruning I mean, is, uh, you know, helpful to a plant. Also in forests, where a good deal of the origination of myth is to be recognized, out of rot comes comes life. Uh, even in these forests here of the, the beautiful redwoods. I was in uh, a wonderful forest right near Mendocino, and there there are some great, great stumps from enormous trees that were cut down some decades and decades ago, and out of them are coming these bright, new little children who are part of the same plant. Uh, so there's a sense of uh, death as not death somehow, that. Uh, Death is required for, for new, fresh life, and so on. And the individual isn't quite an individual. He is a member of a plant. Jesus uses the term, you know, where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Uh, that vineyard idea is a totally different one from the separate entity of the animal.
2: And this makes a difference on the stories you oh, tell about... Oh, the whole
1: feeling about what life is.
2: What stories did this experience of the planter give rise to your favorite stories in, in, in plant development? Well,
1: the uh, cutting up and burial and then growing of the plant world, the world of the plant that you eat, being already a cut-up dead body, is, is the dominant motif, I would say, in most of the tales. It occurs all over the place, particularly in the Pacific cultures
2: and uh, in the Americas. Tell me that story of the origin of maize as, as Longfellow, as barred, Longfellow. It, barred it from the Shippewas, didn't he, or the Algonquins?
1: Well, it's an Algonquin story, and uh, it, it is simply of the boy, in his vision, he sees a young man come to him with uh, plumes on his head and uh, green and so forth, and the visitant invites the young man to a wrestling match and allows him to win wins and wins. This happens three or four times. But he tells them, the last time I come, you must kill me and bury me and take care of the place where you will have buried me. And the boy then, uh, in the last one, actually does what he has been told to do, plants the man, uh, the visitant, and in time comes back and sees the, the corn growing. And it was a boy who had been uh, concerned for his father, who was a hunter, but old. And he was thinking, isn't there some other way to get food besides this one? And so it came to him out of his intentions. A lovely story.
2: Some other way of getting food than hunting. Yeah. But the idea is that this visitor, this figure in the vision, has to die and be buried before the plant can grow from the remains of his body. That's the main theme. It, it comes up, uh, I mean,
1: almost a duplicate of this one in, throughout Polynesia, for instance.
2: Well, there's one in Polynesia about the legend of the maiden Hina. You remember that one? Well, uh,
1: all of the legends in the middle, in the Polynesian area have a maiden named Hina, and she's associated with the moon, and, the, the, you know, the death and resurrection of the moon is, uh, is uh, dominant theme. What happens to her in this legend? Well, the girl who uh, loves to bathe in a certain pool and there's a great eel that uh, is swimming around in the pool and uh, day after day he scrapes across her her thigh as she's uh, bathing and uh, then one fine lovely day he turns into a young man and uh, he becomes her lover for uh, a moment and then goes away and comes back again and back again and then one time when he comes he says just as the uh, Algonquian uh, visitant uh, now next time I come to visit you you must kill me and uh, cut off my head and bury my head and she does so and uh, there grows from the buried head a coconut tree and when you pick coconut and look at the coconut, you can see it's just the size of the head, and you can see
2: eyes and things and the little nodules that uh, simulate the head. So, what you have is the same story springing up in cultures unrelated to each other. Now, what is it? Well, saying? to
1: such an extent that it's stunning. And after years and years and years of reading these things, I'm still overwhelmed at the similarities in cultures that are far, far apart. There are two explanations of this. Uh, One explanation is that uh, the human psyche is essentially the same all over the world. It is the inward aspect of the human body which is essentially the same all over the world, with the same organs, with the same instincts, with the same impulse systems, with the same conflicts, the same fears. There is also the counter-theory of diffusion. Now, for instance, when agriculture is first developed, let's say, in the Near East or in Southeast Asia, I mean, these are the two big centers in the Old World, uh, then the art of tilling the soil goes forth from this area, and along with it goes a mythology that has to do with fertilizing the earth, and bringing up the plants, killing the body, cutting it up, by burying it and having the plant come. That myth will go with the agricultural tradition. It will, you won't find it in a planting, in a hunting culture tradition. So that there are historical as well as psychological aspects to this problem.
2: In all of these stories, there is someone dying, a hero dying, in order for life to appear again. What does that say to you? Let me tell you one story here. Uh, this
1: isn't a story, this is a, a, a ritual. It's in New Guinea. And uh, it's associated with the men's societies in New Guinea and they are horror societies because they really enact the myth of death and resurrection and cannibalistic consumption. And you have the myth there of the buried body and the life coming out of it. You know, this is the basic myth. Now we're going to enact it. So uh, here's this sacred field, the drums going, and chants going, and then pauses, and this went on for three or four or five days, on and on. And Rituals are boring, but they, they just wear you out, you know, and then you break through to something else. Then comes the great moment. The young boys who were being initiated into manhood were now to have their first sexual experience. There was a a great shed uh, of enormous logs supported by two uprights over here. And uh, the young woman comes in, all ornamented as a deity. And uh, she is brought to lie down in this place beneath the, uh, the great roof. And uh, the boys then, with the drums going and chanting going on, one after another, there are about six boys, uh, have uh, their first uh, permitted or public uh, intercourse with the girl. And when the last boy is with her, in full embrace, the supports are withdrawn the logs drop and the couple are killed. There is the union of male and female again, as they were in the beginning before the separation took place. There is the union of uh, begetting and death again, and they're both the same thing. The little pair are pulled out and uh, roasted and eaten right that evening, a- enacting the myth in its essential character. Can't beat that. And the truth to which That's the... the writ- sacrifice of the mass. One of the wonderful things in the Catholic ritual is going to communion. There you're taught that this is uh, the body and blood of the Savior. And you take it to you and you turn inward and there he's working within you.
2: The truth to which the ritual point is...
1: The nature of life itself uh, to be realized in the acts of life. When in the hunting cultures a sacrifice is made, it is as it were a gift, a bribe, as it were, to the deity that is being um, uh, uh, invited to do something for us or to give us something. When a figure is sacrificed in the planning culture, that figure is the god. The person who died, was buried, and became the food. It is Christ crucified? from whose body the food of the spirit comes. There is a sublimation of what originally was a very solid vegetal image. He is on holy rood, the tree. He is himself the fruit of the tree. Uh, Jesus is the fruit of eternal life which was on the second tree in the garden of Eden. When man had eaten of the fruit of the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, He was said to have been expelled from the garden. He had already expelled himself from the garden. The garden is the place of unity, non-duality. Non-duality of male and female, non-duality of man and God, non-duality of good and evil. You eat the duality and you're on the way out. So this tree of the non-duality is the tree of the exit. Now, the tree of coming back to the garden is the tree of immortal life where you know that I and the Father are one, and the, the two that seem to become one again. And this is exactly the tree under which the Buddha sits. The tree of wisdom? The tree of immortal life, of the knowledge of immortal life. And the Buddha under his tree and Christ hanging on his tree are the same, the same image. They are the same image. The one who has died to the flesh and been reborn in the spirit this is an essential experience of any mystical realization you die to your flesh and are born to your spirit you identify yourself with the consciousness and life of which your body is but the vehicle you die to the vehicle and become identified in your consciousness with that of which the vehicle is the carrier do you understand Mm -hmm. me? and that is the God so that what you get in the uh, vegetation traditions is this notion of identity behind the surface display of duality, identity behind it all, all of these are manifestations of the one. The one radiance shines through all things. The function of art, in a way, is to reveal through the object here, the radiance, and that's what you get when you see the beautiful organization of a fortunately composed work of art. You just say, aha somehow it speaks to the order in your own life. This is a realization through art of the very thing that the religions are uh, concerned to
2: render. That, uh, that death is life and life is death and that it the is, two are in
1: accord. You, you have to have a balance between death and life. They're two aspects of the same thing, which is being, becoming. And that's in all of these stories? All of them. I don't know one where, where death is rejected.
2: This idea of sacrifice is so foreign to our world today. Well, the old idea
1: of being sacrificed is not what we think at all. Um, Just consider, I think the great model of sacrifice is the Mayan Indian ball game. You know, they had a kind of basketball game. It It was a loop there up in the uh, in the stadium wall and uh, the idea was to get this big heavy ball through that I don't know how they did it with their shoulders their head or something or and uh, the captain of the winning team was sacrificed on the field by the captain of the losing team his head was cut off and uh, going to your sacrifice as the winning stroke of your life is the essence of the early sacrificial idea. uh, There's a wonderful story that I I found in the Jesuit relations, you know, the Jesuits here in the 17th century as missionaries up in Canada and uh, northern New York State and so forth, of a young Iroquois boy who had just been captured by the Hurons, or perhaps it was the other way around, I've forgotten, and he was being brought to be tortured to death. The Northeast Indians uh, engaged in a a systematic torture which would go on for a long time and the the ordeal was to be sustained with a smile without flinching that was it that was real manhood but the boy is brought to this as though he were being brought to his wedding he is singing and the people with him are treating him as though they were his hosts and he was the honored guest and he played the game with them knowing where he was going And the priests describing the thing are absolutely bewildered by the situation. And they say that the mockery of this kind of hospitality for people who are then going to become the brutes. No, those people were the priests. And this was the sacrifice of the altar. And that boy was Jesus, you know, by analogy. And uh, the, the, the priest every day, every day is celebrating mass, which is an imitation or repetition, actually, of the sacrifice of the cross. That's what this priest was witnessing. And, but then you have it also in, the, in the, John, uh, the Acts of John. Jesus, before going to crucify, the Jesus dance. That's one of the most beautiful passages in the Christian tradition in the uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John Gospels it, it simply mentioned that we sang a, a hymn and uh, Jesus went forth well here you have the whole hymn described in, in a ring and Jesus in the center saying join hands and we'll sing and we'll dance and he says I am this, I am that, I am so forth so forth, amen amen oh my god it's grand and then he walks out to be crucified when you go to your death that way as a god you are going to your eternal life. What's sad about that? Let's make it great. And they do. The god of death is the lord of the dance. The god of death is the lord of sex at the same time. What do you mean? It's a marvelous thing. One After another, you can see these gods. Gede, the uh, the, the death god of the Haitian voodoo, is also the sex god. Wotan, Uh, had one eye covered and the other uncovered, you see? And uh, at the same time was the lord of of life. Osiris, the lord of death and the lord of the generation of life. It's a basic theme. That which dies is born. You have to have death in order to have life. Now, this is the uh, origin thought, really, of the headhunt in Southeast Asia and particularly in the Indonesian zone. The headhunt, right up to now, has has been a a sacred act. It's a sacred killing. Unless there is death, there cannot be birth. And uh, a young man before he can be permitted to to marry and become a father must have uh, gone forth and had his kill. What does that say to you? Well, that every generation has to die in order that the next generation should come. As soon as you beget or give birth to a child, you're the dead one. The child is the new life, and you are simply the protector of that new life.
2: Your time has come, and you Yeah, know well,
1: it. that's why there is this deep psychological association of
2: begetting and dying. Isn't there some relationship between what you're saying and this fact that a father will give his life for his son, a mother will give her life for her child? There's a wonderful paper. I don't know whether you knew that I would
1: love to have talked to this point. There's a wonderful paper by Schopenhauer, who's one of my three favorite philosophers, um, called The Foundation of Morality. There he asks exactly the question that you've asked. How is it that a human being can so participate in the peril and, or pain of another that without thought, spontaneously, he sacrifices his own life to the other? How can this happen? That what we normally think of as the first law of nature, namely self-preservation, is suddenly dissolved and there's a breakthrough. Uh, In Hawaii, uh, some four or five years ago, there was an extraordinary adventure that uh, represents this problem. Uh, there's a place there called the Pali, where the winds from the north, the trade winds from the north, come breaking through a great ridge of rocks and and of mountain, and they come through with a great blast of wind. People like to go up there to get their hair blown around and so forth, or to commit suicide, you know, like jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, the police car was on its way up the early little road that used to go up there, and they saw just beyond the railing that... Uh, keeps cars from rolling over, a uh, young man uh, actually clearly about to jump and prepare himself to jump. Police car stopped. The policeman on the right jumps out to grab the boy and uh, grabs him just as he jumped and was himself being pulled over and would have gone over if the second cop hadn't gotten around, grabbed her and pulled the two of them back. There was a long description of this. It was a marvelous thing in the, in the newspapers at that time. And um, the policeman was asked, uh, why didn't you let go? I mean, you would have lost your life. And you see what happened to that man. This is what's known as one-pointed meditation. Everything else in his life dropped off. Uh, His duty to his family, his duty to his job, his duty to his own career, all of his wishes and hopes for life just disappeared. And he was about to go. And his answer was, I couldn't let go. If I had, and I'm quoting almost word for word, if I had let that young man go, I could not have lived another day of my life. How come? Schopenhauer's answer is, this is the breakthrough of a metaphysical realization that you and the other are one. And that the separateness is only an effect of the temporal forms of sensibility of time and space. And uh, true reality is in that unity with all life. It is a metaphysical truth that becomes spontaneously realized because it's the real truth of your life. Now, you might say the hero is the one who has given his uh, physical life, you might say, to some order of realization of that truth. It may appear that I'm one with my tribe or I'm one with uh, people of a certain kind or I'm one with, with life. This is not a concept. This is a, a realization. Do you see what I mean? No explaining. And the concepts of love your neighbor and all are to put you in tune with that fact. But whether you love your neighbor or not, bing, the thing grabs you and you, you do this thing. You don't even know who it is. That policeman didn't know who that young man was. Schopenhauer said, in small ways, you can see this happening every day, all the time. This is
2: a theme that can be seen moving life in the world. People doing nice things for each other. What do you think has happened to this mythic idea of the hero in our culture today? It comes up in an experience. I
1: think uh, I remember during the uh, Vietnam War, seeing on the television, uh, the, the young men in helicopters going out to rescue one of their uh, companions at great risk to themselves. They didn't have to rescue that young man. It's the same thing working. It puts them in touch with the experience of being alive. Uh, Going to the office every day, you don't get that experience but suddenly you're ripped into being alive and life is pain and life is suffering and life is horror. But by God, you're alive and it's spectacular and uh, this is a case of being alive, rescuing that young man.
2: But I also know a man who said once after years of standing on the platform of the subway, I die a little bit down there every day but I know I'm doing so for my family. <laughs> there are small acts of heroism right. that occur without regard to the nobility or the notoriety that you attract for it. That's right. And the mother does it by the isolation she endures uh, in behalf of the family. of the raising. Motherhood is a sacrifice. On our uh,
1: veranda in Hawaii, uh, there are uh, uh, little birds that come that Gene likes to feed, and uh, each year there have been one or two mothers mother birds. And uh, if you've ever seen a mother bird plagued by her progeny for food, that the mother should regurgitate uh, their meal to them. And the two of them, or five of them in one case, flopping all over this poor little mother, uh, they bigger than she in some cases, uh, you just think, well, this is the symbol of motherhood. This is just giving of your substance and everything to this progeny. This should be it in marriage. A marriage is a relationship. When you make a sacrifice in marriage, you're not sacrificing to the other, you're sacrificing to the relationship. And this is symbolized, for example, in that Chinese image of the Dai Chi, the Tao, you know, with the dark and the light into acting. It's a well-known well known mm-hmm. sign. That is the relationship of yang and yin, male and female, which is what a marriage is. And that's what you are. You're no longer this. You're the relationship. And so marriage, I would say, is not a love affair. It's an ordeal. An and the, ordeal? The ordeal is sacrifice of ego to the relationship of the two-ness, which now becomes the one.
2: One not only biologically but spiritually and primarily spiritually. Primarily spiritually. Mm-hmm. But the necessary function of marriage in order to create our own images and perpetuate ourselves in children. But it's not the primary one, no, as you said. No, that's, that's really
1: just the uh, elementary aspect of marriage. There are two completely different stages of marriage. First is the youthful marriage, following the wonderful uh, impulse, you know, that nature has given us in the interplay of the sexes biologically and uh, in, in then the reproduction uh, of children. But there comes a time when the child uh, graduates from the family and the family is left. I've been amazed at the number of my friends who are in their 40s or 50s go apart, who have had a perfectly decent life together with the child, but they interpreted their union in terms of relationship through the child. They did not interpret it in terms
2: of their own personal relationship to each other. Utterly incompatible with the idea of 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 doing one's own thing. uh, It's not one's
1: own thing, you see. It is, in a sense, one's own thing, but the one isn't just you, it's the two together. Mm. And that's a purely mythological image of the sacrifice of the visual, uh, visible entity for uh, a a, um, transcendent unit. Cracking eggs to make an omelet, you know? Mm. And by marrying the right person, we reconstruct the image of the incarnate God.
2: And that's what marriage is. The right person? How does one choose the right person? Your heart tells you it ought to. Your inner being. That's the mystery. You recognize your other self. Well,
1: I don't know, but there's a flash that comes and something in you knows that this is
2: the one. Hmm? What has mythology told you about death? What do you think about death? Well, the the way, if one
1: can identify with the consciousness of which the body is a vehicle and and really achieve an identification with the consciousness of which the body is a vehicle, not knowing what it is, undifferentiated consciousness, uh, one can let the body go. I like what I heard of Woody Allen, you know, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Uh, You can have uh, disengaged yourself from the body and not be there, you might say.
2: And yet, you know from myth and nature that uh, the body dies. It perishes, it it rots, we're back to the beginning of the book. So you expect it.
1: Growing old, I mean, you know what's happening. The body is rotting. It's dying. It's losing its energy. There's more mass than energy here. And the identification then with the, the life which in a plant survives pruning, cutting, and even eating, the plant is right back there again, is, as you might say, a biological
2: image that is metaphorical of this spiritual mystery. There's that wonderful report of the Indians riding into the rain of bullets from Custer's men and they're saying it's a good day to die. It's a great day to die. They're not hanging on.
1: That's the message of the myth. You as you know yourself are not the final term of your being. And uh, you must die to that one way or another giving of yourself to something or in being annihilated actually, physically, uh, to return, you might say, or to recognize. Life is always on the edge of death, always. And one should lack fear and have the courage
2: of life. That's the principal initiation of all of the heroic uh, stories. What's the central story? Which, do you have a story that's central to this? the
1: uh, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The Green Knight, uh, Arthur's court is in session, and uh, there rides into the court on a great big green horse, a giant knight. And uh, the knight says, I have a challenge. I have an adventure. I challenge anyone here to come down here and take this great big axe and cut my head off and then, one year from today, meet me at a green chapel and he'd tell them roughly where the green chapel is, and I'll cut his head off. And the only knight who had the courage to accept this curious invitation uh, was Gawain. And uh, the knight gets off his horse, sticks out his neck, Gawain comes down with his axe, and there's the head. And then the knight uh, stands up, picks up the head, gets on the horse, and rides off says, I'll see you in a year. Well, that year, everybody was very uh, generous to Gawain, and he rides off for the year. As the day approaches, he finds himself before a little hunter's cabin, and he thinks uh, he will ask advice here as to where the Green Chapel is, and tells him, I've got to be there in three days. Then the hunter greets him, and uh, Gawain tells his story, and the Hunter says, well, it's the Green Chapel, he's just down the way here, it's, it's about a couple hundred yards, and why don't you just spend the next three days with us, and uh, we'll entertain you, and, uh, and then you can go to this adventure. All right, very well. So the Hunter says, well, I've got to go out for the day to on the hunt. And he says, you'll spend the night with us, and then in the morning I'll go forth and uh, in the evening I'll come back and I'll give everything I will have got during the day to you and you give to me what you will have got during the day But in the morning the hunter rides off and Gawain's in bed and in comes the hunter's gorgeous beautiful wife and she tickles Gawain's chin and um, uh, invites him to love Well, he's an Arthurian knight, a knight of Arthur's court, and uh, to betray his host is the last thing that a knight can uh, submit to, so he resists this woman. And she's very, very aggressive, and he's very, very uh, stern in his position. And finally she says, well, let me give you a kiss, anyhow. So she gives him one big smack, and uh, that's that. In the evening, the hunter comes back with a great haul of game, throws it in the floor, and Gawain gives him a kiss. And they laugh, and that's that. Second morning, a similar event, the wife comes in, and Gawain gets two kisses. And the hunter comes back with about half as much gain, and he gets two kisses. They laugh, and that's that. The third morning, the wife comes in. Now, here's a man about to meet his death. He's about to have his head chopped off. Uh, a beautiful woman, the last moment I mean, of uh, the possibility of this wonderful fulfillment. And again, he resists. She gives him three kisses and her garter. And she says, this will protect you against any danger. The hunter comes home with just one silly, smelly fox throws down the ground and he gets three kisses, but no garter. So comes the time now to go and have your head chopped off. Do you see what the, what the tests are of the night here? One is sex, you know, lust, and the other is courage. So he approaches the chapel, the green chapel, with the green knight whom he's about to encounter, And he hears the knight whetting this great knife, this great uh, axe. He comes to it, and the knight is there, certainly, the great big green fellow, and he greets him and says, Okay, put your neck out there on this block, and I'll chop your head off. And he lifts the axe, and he says, No, stretch out a little more. He does this three times. And then the axe comes down and just cuts his neck a little bit. The Green Knight says that's for the Goder. Well, this is the legend of the Knights of the Goddard. Here's a knight who really transcended the two great temptations, fear of death and lust for sex and uh, the joys of life. And the moral? And the moral is that the realization of your, your bliss, your true being, comes when you have put aside the uh, the, what might be called passing moment with its terror and with its its temptations and its uh, statement
2: of uh, requirements of life that you should live this way. What is that uh, story about, uh, and I forget where it comes from, about the, the camel and then the lion and along the way you lose the burden of youth? The, the Three Transformations of the Spirit. Yeah. That's
1: Nietzsche. That's the uh, prologue to Thus Bakes Zarathustra*. Tell me that story. When you are a child, when you are young and a uh, young person, you are a, ca- a camel. The camel gets down on its knees and says, put a load on me. This is obedience. This is receiving the instruction and information that your society knows you must have in order to live a competent life. When the camel is well loaded, he gets up on his feet, struggles to his feet, and runs out into the desert, where he becomes transformed into a lion. The heavier the load, the more powerful the lion. The function of the lion is to kill a dragon, and the name of the dragon is Thou Shalt. And on every scale of the dragon, there is a thou shalt imprinted. Some of it comes from 2,000 years, 4,000 years ago. Some of it comes from yesterday morning's newspaper headline. When the dragon is killed, the lion is transformed into a child. An innocent child living out of its own dynamic. And uh, Nietzsche uses the term Ein aus sich rollendes Rad, a wheel rolling out of its own center. Hmm. That's what you become. That is the mature individual. The thou shalt is a civilizing force. It turns a, a human animal into a civilized human being. But then the one who is thrown off the thou shalt is still a civilized human being. You see, he has been. Uh, humanized you might say by the thou shalt system so his performance now as a child is not simply childlike at all he has assimilated the culture and thrown it off as a thou shalt but this is the way in any artwork you go to work and study an art you study the techniques you study all the rules and the rules are put upon you by a teacher then there comes a time of using the rules not being used by them do you understand what I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You're so also... one way is, is, to, is to follow, and I always tell my students, follow your bliss. Follow, follow your bliss? Your bliss, where the deep sense of being in form and, and, and going where your body and the soul want to go. Uh, mm-hmm. When you have that feeling, then stay with it and don't let anyone throw you off. Have you ever read uh, Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt? Not in a long time. Do you remember the last line? I've never done the thing I wanted to in all my life. That's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, I heard that line. I was living in Bronxville when I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence. Before I was married, I used to be eating out in the restaurants of the town for my lunch and dinners. And Thursday night was the maid's night off in Bronxville so that all the families were out in the restaurants. And one fine evening, I was in my favorite restaurant. There, it was a Greek restaurant, and uh, at the table were sitting a father, a mother, and a scrawny little boy about twelve years old. The father says to the boy, <clears throat> "Drink your orange. Uh, your drink your tomato juice." Uh, and the boy says, "I don't want to." And uh, the father, with a louder voice, says, "Drink your tomato juice." And the mother says. Don't make him do what he doesn't want to do. The father looks at her and she says, He can't go through life doing what he wants to do. (laughs) said, If he does only what he wants to do, he'll be dead. Look at me. I've never done a thing I wanted to in all my life. I said, my God. Babbitt incarnate. And that's the man who never followed his bliss. Well, you may have a success in life, but then just think of it. What kind of life was it? What good is it? You've never done the thing you wanted to in all your
2: life. What happens when you follow your bliss?
1: You come to bliss. This should be it in marriage. I mean, that's the sense of the, of the marriage ceremony. In, uh, in the Middle Ages, a, a, f- a favorite image that occurs in many, many contexts is the wheel of fortune. There's the hub of the wheel. And there's the revolving rim of the wheel. And if you are attached to the rim of the wheel, let's say fortune, uh, that you will be either above, going down, at the bottom, or coming up. But if you are at the hub, you're in the same place all the time. And that's the sense of the marriage uh, vow. You know, I take you in health or sickness, you know, in wealth or poverty, but I take you. And you are my bliss, not the wealth that you might bring me, nor the social prestige, but you. And that's following your bliss. I came to this idea of bliss because uh, in Sanskrit, uh, which is the great spiritual language of the world, and they know all about it and have known about it for a long time, uh, the transcendent is transcendent. But there are three terms that bring you to the brink. You might say the jumping-off place to the ocean. And the three terms are sat, chit, ananda. And sat, the word sat, means being. Chit means full consciousness. And ananda means rapture. So I thought, I don't know whether my consciousness is full consciousness or not i don't know whether my being is a uh, proper being or not but i do know where my rapture is so let me hang on to rapture and that'll bring me both being and full consciousness and it works well,
2: what was your rapture
1: well it started with indians and then it went on into more and more mythological matters and the realm of the arts music and uh... And, uh the, uh, the, the when I met Gene, then the dance came in, and um, this is uh, this is it to stay with that.
2: And one doesn't have to be um, a poet to do this. Carpenters do it. A poet is Farmers. simply
1: one who's made a profession and a lifestyle of uh, being in touch with that. Most people have to be concerned with other things. Uh, they get themselves. Uh, involved in uh, economic and other uh, activities or you're drafted into a war that isn't the one you're interested in. And uh, how to, um, to hold to this um, umbilical, you might say, uh, in, in those circumstances. That's a technique each one has to work out for himself somehow. But uh, most people living in that realm of uh, what might be called uh, occasional concerns uh, they all have the capacity that's waiting to be awakened to, to move to this other place. I know it. I've seen it happen in students. A uh, wonderful way of teaching we had at Sarah Lawrence where I taught for 38 years, uh, with ha- I'd have an individual conference with every one of my students at least once a fortnight for half an hour or so. And there you're talking on about the things that students ought to be reading and suddenly you hit on something that the student really responds to. You can see the eyes open, the complexion changes, the uh, life possibility has opened there. And all you can say to uh, yourself is, I hope this child hangs on to that, hmm. you know, they may or may not. But when they do, they've found a life right there in the
2: room with you how would you advise somebody to tap that spring of eternal life, that joy that is right there? Well,
1: we're having experiences all the time which uh, uh, may, on occasion, render some sense of this, a little intuition of where your joy is. Grab it. No one can tell you what it's going to be. I mean, you've got to learn to recognize your own depths.
2: Do you ever have this sense when you're following your bliss, as I have at moments, of being helped by hidden hands? All the time. It's
1: miraculous. I even have a superstition that has grown on me as the result of invisible hands coming all the time. Namely that if you do follow your bliss you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you and, uh, and the life that you ought to be living is the one you're living somehow. And uh, when you can see it, uh, you, you begin to deal with people who are in the field of your bliss. And they open doors to you. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be.
2: Do you ever have sympathy for the man who has no invisible means of support?
1: Who has no invisible means? Yes, he's the one that evokes compassion, you know, the poor chap. and. And to see him stumbling around when uh, the water of immortal life is right there is, uh, is uh, really, it evokes one's pity. Right there? Hmm? Right there? You yes. believe that? Yes. The waters of eternal life? Right there. Where? Wherever you are. If you're following your bliss. I mean, you're, you're having that joy, that, that uh, refreshment, that life all the time.